Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest, all the way from 13 hours away in New Zealand, is James Ascroft. Welcome to the show. Kia Stuart. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about your film, Coming Home in the Dark, which is available in the UK on Netflix. I presume it's available in other places on on the same platform, or is it other platforms? Netflix, yes, yes, we're a, a global Netflix. Brilliant, brilliant. So before we go into details about how you how you made that film, do you want to give people a brief synopsis of how you would describe the film? Yeah, I I, I personally describe it as um, it's a it's a perfect family outing uh, that gets uh, interrupted by two men with a rifle and turns into a road trip. From hell, which um, sees sees this this uh, perfect urbane family um, really have to look and explore who they are, and the past is never done with us. No, no, as um, as as uh, Mandrake says, it's small country. <laughs> he's uh, he's not the only one who's ever said that about New Zealand. I think that, that's a, that's a quite a common phrase. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a small country. No, I like. I just like that idea of summing up the the nightmare that's happening. And he's like, quite matter of fact about it. You know, the chances were great, mate. You know, <laughs> but uh, we'll we'll try our best to for the listeners' benefit who might not have seen the film to stray away from too many spoilers. Because I must admit, I went in freezing cold when I went to see it. I just like the I just like the smell of it when I saw it come up on my list, and I'm like, and then it started, and I was in. So I know what it was like to feel the onions, the layer of the onions come back. So inevitably, maybe later on in the conversation, we might dip into some specific details, but I'll try my best to not be spoilery. And I've watched it a couple of times, so I am familiar with its backwards and forwards. So I might use words like the problem or the event, and you, I'll assume you know what I mean. I was reading um, about the sort of shaming of... Child, children, childhood care in in New Zealand, which was a news story that ran during 2021, because I think there must have been a big court case that came through a quarter of a million children out of 650,000 that had been in care were seen, were, were viewed to have been abused in some way, shape or form. But obviously that news broke after you've made your film, or certainly after you've started developing your film. So for you, where does, where does the... Um, where does the idea, the concept, and the idea that that started in your head that became the film that we can see now on Netflix? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it, it really comes from, I think, two sources. One, one is obviously uh, inspiration from the short story coming home by Owen Marshall, but uh, I say inspiration rather than adaptation because that short short story is really only like the first twenty minutes of the film. And in many ways, you know, you know, I loved uh, uh, Eli Kent, who, who co-wrote the project with me. We loved the story. We loved the tone. We loved the sketch of those characters and setting, and the and the idea that you know, extreme violence can can also be found in the most beautiful and, and picturesque places in our country. But but it, you know, a, as a piece in of itself. We had seen that film before. We'd seen that film done really well by other people. So we knew we had to try and find a way to get underneath that short story to have it speak to something more personal and bigger contemporary. So 
we sort of just sort of set it aside for a while. We worked on a number of other projects, but I've always had an interest uh, in in that world of the boys' homes or, or the child welfare and that and that massive failing that um, it, it has had, not only in New Zealand but in most. I mean, most it's a first. Places. It's a first world sent shame everywhere you look. I think, to be honest with you, there's stories yeah. in most first world yeah. countries of how care of poor and vulnerable people was just given to sadists and predators. Yeah. And and there's and there's many layers to that failing too, which you know I I I really found out from speaking and interviewing and, and becoming friends with with a number of people who had gone through that system. Um, I had uh, one of my brothers, he he had a brief stint in that he he had a he, he actually had a very good time there. So he was he was one of the the lucky few. But I produced a documentary um, a few years back, which was very, very small documentary that looked at a very specific boys' home in New Zealand. And one of the things that um, and this was sort of known as one of the worst, you know, of you know, it's it's constantly referenced and and the Royal Commission, which is the thing that's just come about in recent times, which is giving us those factual numbers and impacts of what what that failing of state care did. And by doing that documentary, that was a great sort of eye-opener and put me in, in touch with a lot of not only former residents, but also some of the former housemasters and, and teachers there. And, and what I found really fascinating at the core of it, other than this, and you know, the, the, how the long shadow of, of um, abuse still affects many of its survivors and my absolute admiration that these people are still standing and fighting um, is also that, you know, on the flip side, you have uh, people who went, uh, who taught at places like this or who were staff at places, and some of these people were great. They were real humanitarians, really, really focused on doing something um, positive for you. But there's another side, which is, um, you know, this, 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 Need for staff, um, untrained, um, given no support. They may very well have gone in there with best intentions, but in a pretty, you know, toxic culture and environment where violence was encouraged. You know, it was just about control and getting these kids to do as they're told. That that becomes quite a corrosive and corrupting thing, which I, I you know, which, which is I think we're all susceptible to in a different environment. So I make the distinction there because obviously these environments too attracted predators, you know, the sharks go to where the, where the, the school, the fish are. And, and so it did attract some very, you know, the horrible people uh, who never had, uh, you know, good intentions in mind. But I did get very interested in that dilemma of a good person going in to do positive things for kids but finding themselves trapped and affected. And it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't take long before, you know, your environment starts to affect and shape you, um, you know, for a number of reasons. Fear can, fear can be a huge thing, trying to fit in, trying to do your best or, or you know, doing what others around you do. So I got interested in the flip side of those men who who found themselves in that position, but also it didn't take too long before they started using their fists and thumping children. 
Um, because at the same time, you've got uh, with with a lot of former residents, those who have uh, dabbled in, in crime um, throughout their lives. You know, you know, there's no black and white on either side. No, no, no. So it's just still this question about this: how everyone is still living in the shadow cast by by these state-run institutions. So, and it's and it's timely that you know things like the Royal Commission in New Zealand are now. Um, you know, concluding and starting to acknowledge the failings. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You know, of these former residents. So once you've got sort of your head around the sort of macro issues of it, obviously you've got to make a drama. You've got to turn that into a, into a personal story with real stakes for the individuals concerned. So, what were the challenges then for you when? Um, sorry, I forgot his name. I'm sorry. Um, you, you and Eli, in terms of making that into a, into a screenplay that could be could be the film. Yeah, I think I think overall the biggest challenge, which you know, continued to be even after we'd finished it, was um, steering away from any temptation to black and white the characters. Mm. So you know, so from treating one as a villain and one as a hero, these terms protagonist antagonist. Now, don't get me wrong. Mandrake does some pretty unforgivable things mm. to which he, you know, in this film, which he should be held accountable for. That's different. When we talk about these two men at the centre of it, we wanted to sort of go, well, how do we, how do we not let the audience off being able to go, oh, good, I can sort of distance myself from from that character and say they're good or they're bad. And that was that was always that was something we were very clear on from the outset of not trying to, um, you know, let the audience off the hook in any way when it comes to these characters. And we wanted those allegiances to be sort of shifting and fluctuating. Yeah. Cause I could imagine it could have been really easy to make Jill the moral center of this film where all good emanates kind of thing. And, and she's, I mean, you know, obviously she's in many ways the most, empathetic and sympathetic uh, character because of, you know, uh, who she is as a, as a person, but also what she goes through and the decisions she makes there. But it was, um, it was very much, you know, we had her, but it, uh, to one side of Hoagie, but it's also about going, you know, seeing the, seeing the, seeing his character through her eyes and going, well, what does that really mean for us as an audience too? And how does that inform how we feel about both Mandrake and Hoagie and Tubbs as well. I mean, I did, I mean, I'm guessing, did you, did you have the, the sort of the end in sight from the get go, obviously Mandrake's identity and Hoagie's identity is clear from the moment the film starts, isn't it? From, from your point of view, we don't know as the audience, that's the, that relationship or that understanding of what's really going on is what, what you begin to reveal. So for, for Jill, she can. She's like the audience in a way, isn't she? Yeah, ve- yeah, very much so. I mean, that's that's why we sort of so say we kind of have to we 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 begin to understand who who her husband really is through her eyes, and it's that was that was always something we were very clear on because um, you know a lot of a lot of residents uh, at, at a lot of boys' homes they often had nicknames. Um, you know, some of the teachers and the housemasters had nicknames and. And in many cases, you know that, that the nickname endures uh, into life. And you know, I like the idea of 
um, you know, as an adult man, you, you you stay the way you look, essentially. You know, you're, you're always going to be a version of that. But a 10-year-old, there's a big difference between a 10-year-old boy and a 30-year-old man that they become. And I liked the idea of, um, uh, you know, uh, not this guy not being able to recognise who his, you know, aggressor is, and that slowly starts to unfold for him. But also the idea that it's, um, you know, Mandrake's forgotten what who this man is until he hears his nickname, and then that all comes back, and that and that felt um, that felt very real and grounded to me. That sense of we forget, we you know, we choose to remember or, or, or retain knowledge um, accordingly, and it's often interesting how those little little details then open up big sparks into our memory banks. Because one of the things we always, you know, from from a distributor's point of view, we had a number of distributors going, this needs to be, you know, these guys need to be um, hunting the the family. They, they need to be like serial killers. And, and, you know, we weren't very interested in that sort of dynamic because, um, you know, it feels much more um, grounded as we were saying before, this is a small country, you know, you know, where do you, and Mandrake says, where do you think we go? This idea that, you know, beautiful spots in New Zealand, all around the country, you have to share it with everyone and good things and bad things happen in these places. The land remains indifferent, but New Zealand is, is, is you know, the whenua, the land actually belongs to everyone and what comes from it has to be acknowledged equally i mean i mean yeah the the the, it's almost like from an anti-heroic point of view what we see happen is is um is is mandrake's manifest destiny it's like the drifting was his mission although he probably didn't know it consciously until the spark happens his mission was to do this it's it it it, it, it might not have been that particular man but it was going to be it was going to be a man connected with that part of his life that he could then almost like, it's a bit like, um, like an adoptive child finding their real parents. It's almost like that, that missing connection in terms of who you are as an adult. Yeah, that's a great, yeah, that's a great way of putting it actually. Cause I mean, for Mandrake and Tubbs, this is, you know, I think he says later in the film, you know, this is just another, this is just another car we needed, another meal. You know, just you know, this is this is, and we open with the um the the abandoned car at the side of the road, giving an idea of like this is this is who the last meal ticket was. This is just sort of how these guys are are living their lives in in this very brutal fashion. But yes, it is a thing of you know the past does catch up with you for both Mandrake and for Hoagie, and this in- inevitability of um we'll meet again. I mean, if I'm going to go back to when I watched it the first time and just think, and, I, and when I watched it the first time, and I'll, and I'll use the expression, the first two vile, violent, evil, violent events that happen that get us going, and then we're driving down a darkened road. I'm like, where the hell's he going to go now? He's, he's spent all his money. He spent all his money on the story. Where, where can the story go from here? Like, you know, coming to it cold. You're just like you're you're you I'm used, you know, I've watched enough horror films and I'm like, well, you know, two drifters and something violent after that, that usually at least midway we're gonna get there. But 
for, forget, forgetting, forget is over that line within 10, 15 minutes. I'm like, my goodness, hold on to your seats. Like, I mean, you really did take the carpet from under the audience, I felt. But even now, it's one of the first things whenever anyone says, you know, I saw your film. It's like I'm, I'm going in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm trying to stop myself from asking them, like, oh, did you, did you, did you keep watching after minute 16? You know, it's, uh, it was always a, you know, a, a, a bold card to play. It was, it was in the short story. So, and to be honest, like initially when we first started scripting, Eli and I, we looked at every possibility of how to get around that moment, how to cheat that moment. You know, I think at one stage we were going, well, maybe, maybe it's, um, maybe they're Hoagie's parents, elderly parents, because it's the right to shoot the elderly and not, the, not you know, or anything, get rid of them. Um, but it was it was a it was a moment we were going like this is going to be you know this is this is a moment where the audience is either going to hunker hunker down or they're going to opt out um, and you know, you know I, I'm a father myself so um, you know I'm, I'm aware of what the ask is but you know when we really came down to it it was about going from this point all bets are off and. The, the sooner we can get into this being the catalyst for what we want to say, which is really the meat of it, um, we can't we can't fully go there unless we do this. I, I would compare it to, like, say, how Kiss Me Deadly starts, you know, with the barefooted woman. You know, it's like, you, where the hell am I? What's the film doing to me? And I mean, when thematically for us, that was the that was the the main the main point of going like, no, this is we feel comfortable and and clear about what the intention is here because what we are talking about with not to be too spoilery is thematically we're talking about the death of children in some way shape or form spiritually mentally emotionally we're talking about broken children and i always think actually mandrake and tubs in one sense i mean you know these are these are two these are two children who died you know uh, these are two men who died in their, in their childhood, essentially. They've been surviving since 10 years old, haven't they, really? Yeah. Once we were, you know, made that decision and that clarity, as I say, it was actually very easy then to move on and, and incorporate events. I mean, there was always, you know, sort of a, a, a sense of, you know, a lot of people, I think it's it's quite divisive in, mm. in that way. I think some people really lean into it and other people sort of expect there to be, you know, con- a continual topping of events mm. or violence and things like that. Um, but, you know, and that's why, you know, Jill does what she does. You know, there is no, um, there's no greater fear for a parent mm. um, and no, you know, and there's no not coming back from. No, and also you make, you make it with, 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 without even knowing what, what's going on. For, for for Mandrake and Jill, it is only ever life and death from that point on. There's they these people can behave in such cold logistical ways in terms of acting in viol- acting with violence that you're just needing to work out how and when you can get away if if that ever happens. And that's not going to be something you have to plan and strategize. It's going to be <laughs> the stakes are that high. We're going to take a chance, kind of thing. And also about like how do you arrest people, truly arrest them, and get, and get them engaged in this very sort of. We, we think of the. I always thought of the car as like a pressure cooker. How do we? How do we? 
create such pressure and put these characters under such duress that it gets to a boiling point. And that's when it explodes onto the onto the landscape. And there's these these moments where steam is is let out, um, you know, escape attempts are made. And then how do we get them back in this sort of, you know, endless nightmare um, of this car traveling through the the deserted countryside at New Zealand at night? There, there is literally nowhere to run. Yes, that was the bit that, for, for all of the claustrophobia in the car, the minute they were out of the car, you just, they were like, they were like rabbits in headlights all the time because there wasn't, there wasn't anywhere, there wasn't, you couldn't knock on someone's door because you're in the middle of nowhere. You weren't mm. going to happen upon someone because it's an empty rural road at the God knows what hour at night. And yeah. you felt that really. So there was that inescapableness of it. And like I say, with the high stakes you'd already set with that opening, opening salvo, you know, I well, I was I was gripping the arms of my seat, so I was in. Mandrake is a particular. He's almost like sophisticated in his psychopathy. I think is is a, probably a, a fair way to describe him because he's he's kind of measured, and yet he's not afraid to do the dirty work at the same time. So he can have mm. a wonderful conversation with you, and you can feel like you're talking to someone that is being reasonable. And then you'll see the evidence of your eyes that there's not a reasonable bone in his body if he wants his own way. How did you and Eli sort of fight with that one? You know, the, the the idea of a man with such shark-like purpose, but actually quite 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 enthralling. Eli and I come from acting backgrounds. We we come from the theatre, and 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 we've both spent a lot of time um, on the boards here in New Zealand. So the way we usually write is when we get together in this little office here is that we sort of get to a point once we've once we've got a shape of the whole and who these men are kind of wear them like suits a bit um we always end up you know sort of falling into characters i always seem to end up the sadistic character um and poor eli's the this is nothing indicative of our relationship as writer director but it's it's we, we kind of we we try and sniff them out, I think, with an actor's nose and also the idea of, you know, pursuing, well, what would be great to do in a moment like this? So, and that can be really helpful just in terms of challenging challenging ourselves and each other on perceptions or judgments that might start to creep in around a character. I mean, part of what's great about Owen's story is that he gives you this great sketch of, of Mandrake, which is about sort of challenging your perceptions of what you think, um, you, you know, criminality is, or you know that that you know people can't be civil, people can't um, be erudite and loquacious. You know, this is, and and for us, it was always with Mandrake. It's always, you know, but what's fueling all of that is it's a demonstration for him. It's like him flexing his muscles um, in in a pub, you know, when he's getting the feeling that someone's going to challenge him to a fight. It's that idea of going, you know, I can take you on in this way. Obviously, you know, the more the greater you push, the more you push, and Hoagie does, you know, down the track is that you start to realise that that is posturing. It, it is surface level. But he does, He's he's been able to, he's somebody who's clearly has an aptitude um, an interest um, in, in knowledge and and words, words as weapons. I suspect he learnt over the years. Um, everything being fueled and weaponized 
is is how I think of Mandrake. Um, and I think you know that's that makes for a really nice contrast to say just the look of the the man who who you first meet. And I think that's really important with you know in both respects to him and Hoagie as well. Because I mean part of the reason why we cast Eric Thompson as as Hoagie is that Eric's sort of like the the the, the good father. Um, and husband of New Zealand and, and Australia. He's done a lot of television here where he is affable, lovable, good man. And a cast, cast him because, A, he's a great actor, but, but B, it's like if I found, if, if, Eric, if Eric had done anything like Hoagie had done, I would have felt a deep sense of disappointment in the man because, because he reflects such a strong warmth and and righteousness um, there. You know, he's got, he's got such a he's got such a, 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 a an open and warm quality and a humanity to him. So I'd be deeply disappointed. And I think that's you know when we talk about Mandrake, that's the same thing. We're sort of immediately going from the look from the outset. I'm going to judge this character, and then as we find out, oh no, there's way more to this man that we're presuming. And that, in turn, is the weapon, and he, Mandrake knows that about us. He plays into it. And I think, I think one of the things that, that, that struck me watching it a second time is, is that when you're in control as much as you could call Mandrake and Tubbs in control, there isn't much cause for them to raise their voices, whereas Jill and Hoagie are obviously out of control, quite literally. And it's interesting how raised voices from a, from a fear point of view turn into, in Hoagie's case, raised voices from a needing to defend himself because now he's frightened of the truth. He's not frightened of the situation. He's frightened of what he's never admitted. And that makes him raise his voice as well. But but no no time, even though you could argue that Mandrake and, and, and Tubbs have got every reason to be angry at the world about everything, they should be shouting their heads off. They've obviously shouted themselves out. So that kind of base anger doesn't exist anymore. So what they have is just a seething attitude to everything around them. So they just, they, there's, there's not, there's no point getting excited about it because it never did any good, never did them any good in the past. No, exactly. I mean, you said that's a great way of putting it. I mean, there's, these are men who have been probably screaming inside for 30 years. Mm. And they've gone through every hell imaginable and they've become calloused to that. You know, they become, that is what life is. That is what's to be expected. But when, you know, you're always somebody, if you're somebody like Hoagie or, or Jill, you know, you, you believe in, in civility and things mm. like that. But, um, uh, yeah, I, and, and also too, I mean, you know, and I've learned, I've learned this from bad directors actually, who I'm, I'm very grateful for, for having in the past as an actor. Yeah. Um, because I've learned the most is just like people who, you know, people who yell, Usually, you know, to, for control are, are, you know, you're playing your hand, you're revealing that you have no control. If you, yeah. say, if you turn you up know, to 11, you've only, you haven't got, you can, you can only stay at 11. You can't. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, when I think about the bullies in life or, or the ones who have been the most insidious people who I've met, um, they've always been very measured. They don't, they don't need to mm. um, those muscles. Um, it's just, it's right down here. It's personal. It's um, it's invasive. It's, now, it's now we've been talking about twenty five minutes, so I think I can I can just let people know who are listening that I might 
I'm going to ask some question, a question now that is going to have to give some spoilery away because it's it's about the nature of how you tell the story. And I'm just fascinated to know, in terms of the way that you tease us into the truth that reveals, and I don't mean for you to give us everything about it, but what do you remember being the sort of hardest element of the backstory you're bringing into the present to hold off and how and 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 to get that timing right in terms of the situation and the journey we're on which element of the of the of hoagie's truth was the hardest to sort of suppress because it would have been easy to tell everything in the first minute if you really if you really wanted to but it done us no favors there's you know one thing i'm always conscious of and and, and eli is is you know we we respect the audience we respect ourselves as audience members um audiences you know it doesn't take much before you know the detective is putting putting all the clues together and, and moving forward just you know, the sheer amount of viewing that we've had and exposure to these kinds of stories so as soon as you you know you you get a sense of like okay these guys have met before we're already you know even subconsciously already connecting all the possible um you know avenues and once you become you know uh, it's mentioned that Hoagie's a teacher. You know, it's obviously very quick to to jump to conclusions there. And once you mention something like, you know, a, a boy's home, then, you know, we know what happens there. We've already, you know, connected those dots. So we had to be very, very um, clear about going, if we, whatever we put on the table, once it's there, the audience is going to then jump 10 steps ahead of us. So it's also about drip feeding but also they're not trying to, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to make sure that you're not, you're drip feeding the right amount at the right time because the audience is going to figure it out and not, and not hang on those notes. Just, just leave it in the air unanswered. Like as, as Mandrake does, Oh good. I've given you enough to know that, you know, our paths have crossed. I'm not going to tell you who I was. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, you, cause you get, cause Hoagie's first sort of suspicion is I didn't tell you, I didn't tell you I was a teacher. And so you're like, yeah. so then suddenly we as an audience who've been shocked by the opening bit by the lake are suddenly like, oh my God, you know, he must know him in some way, shape or form, but we don't know how. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I just, I, I was, I it just, I just thought that, I mean, I don't want to spoil any more than that, but I think that's for me is the magic of the film is the way that you, you draw us into that drama without needing, without needing to, um, to nail it early doors, it's much more fun to allow us to stew on it as much as as much as Jill is stewing on it. And then, I mean, one of my favorite, I mean, favorite bits in the in the film is where Jill's gone on this horrible journey of obviously what's happened to her children, and then mm. what she now knows about her husband, and the husband is looking for support. And all you do is you show him trying to shove his hand down the back of a chair, mm. and she rejects. She doesn't give him any comfort or he doesn't get the solace he was seeking. And you're like, Jesus, even out of this scenario, their relationship has has not survived. I mean, not that it should. Yeah. I mean, she's got to be, I mean, making Jill active was one thing because in in this, in the short story, you know, she's fine, but ultimately she's a victim Mm. and that's, you know, she, she cries, she screams, she wails, she gets, you know, she gets discarded. Mm. And we're very adamant, um, you know, in, in putting that sketch together. We actually based Jill on my wife. Oh, right. a, a bit. We, whenever we got stuck, we'd go, well, you know, 
we can imagine, but what would you do? You know, and, and you know, <laughs> uh, Debbie, you know, would have checked out, you know, long ago, but it was that thing of going like, how do we make somebody uh, the fourth member of this quartet who has nothing to do with the past? How do we activate them in a meaningful way about, you know, how that how they're starting to relate and, and be involved in this mystery mm how you know things got to this point in this in this strange meeting and 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 she's a character who you know as we said earlier we've got to we've got to be in her shoes we mm. want to be seeing world through her perspective and what does it mean for a mother to have endured what happens to her um because in some way it has to do with the man that she married and now and now you're learning that the man you married you're learning a, a, about another layer uh to him and you know she she's got to be suffering you know these these terrible losses along the way um but also she's got to you know she's got to take you know her her life and her choices into her own hands too that was also no, it's it's, fant- it's fantastically done. It's really it's a really enjoyable aspect of of like of of they're both victims of the, of of the of the drifters, but she's like a victim of the truth much more than Hoagie is, who's the man who's sort of held on to it. Um, yeah, and that gives her the power too. So she's yeah. that's why she can challenge Mandrake in the way he does, as uh, she does. And I think that's I th- I think he genuinely, you know, I mean. He he has to control her, obviously. Mm. He has to control everything in his life. But um, you know, I think there's probably a, a, a you know, he he says, I think he says, um, you know, I can see why you married her. Oh, he paid, I mean, when when she um, when she when she makes her um, a big move, as it were, he he pays her a compliment to the husband, doesn't he? It's like it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of like it's quite human that moment, even though it's quite desperate in terms of their their overall. Bad mission they're on. Thinking of how it looks and feels, and I've already mentioned "Kiss Me Deadly," which you know I feel like you've you've definitely you've made a, like to me like a, a proper neo noir in the in the way that you've the way you've done it. You've given us ordinary people. You've given us the idea that the the game is rigged and that the only way to beat the system is to do wrong. You know all those elements which are brilliant. All all the tools of a noir. But we obviously start off not that noir does exi- only exist in in the nighttime, but obviously. We start in the day and then we drive through the night. Obviously, the title being a big clue in that. But obviously, that they're two different challenges. And I think, I think, I mean, it may have just been the circumstances of the day when you shot. But I thought that it being an overcast day and a bit blustery means it wasn't. Even though they are the perfect family, it wasn't the perfect day by any stretch of the imagination. And and in some yeah. senses, that made because I've not been to that part of the world. It made what you showed us actually stand on its own two feet because the sun can make. Lot, any place look half beautiful, but yeah. on an overcast, blustery day when th- those those sh- those when they're going down in that like can the, the grass covered canyon and stuff, you really feel the sense the size of New Zealand as as a landscape. And then obviously once we once we leave the the, the lake and we go off on the drive in the dark, that's a whole different other challenge. So I just wondered what was the conversations like between you and Matt Henley in terms of that kind of contrast in cinematography and. And how they both bled into each other, I suppose. No, Matt's great, and I mean this is this was Matt's uh, first feature film. We had we together over eight short films to develop a, a working relationship together, and you know he's a he's a he's a real integral creative partner um, for me. 
the the thing we were very clear on in terms of the overall intentions of this, and this film, uh, you know, exi- exists between night and day. It's for me the that's the thematic of it. That's the look of it. That's the characters. Everyone is inhabiting this this grey space, and we were really clear about going. We didn't want to present landscapes in New Zealand. You know, we didn't want to go down that Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. You weren't doing you, visitnewzealand.com, were you? No, no. I'm, I'm fact. I'm positive that you know Department of um, Tourism will never get me to direct any of their <laughs> commercials, um after this film. But it's it's that sense of going. We wanted to go. What's what? Where are those environments that are both beauty that where beauty exists, but also there's also that just that sense of potential danger or threat to them. Mm. And to me, that's the real New Zealand. So yeah. I think you know one of the most beautiful um, countries in the world. But for me, the feeling of being you can be in those bright, uh, big, open spaces. And they can turn on a dime. You can suddenly feel very isolated. Uh, you know, the the land, the whenua is indifferent to what happens on it. Yes, of course. You know? Yeah, nature doesn't give a shit, does it? No, no. And that's and that was very much. It was a different landscape in the short story, but but that sentiment that 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 Owen Marshall had in there about you know horrible things happening against the backdrop of great beauty. It was something that we were always looking for. And we just took it a step further by going, well, what are those landscapes that that we have a, a relationship to? So all around, a lot of those places that were um, found uh, by our location scout, David Goldfall, he did a really great job. Those are actually places that, you know, Matt and I had some familiarity with from our childhood, um, those big coast lines which uh you know we we like and and you know those sort of uh, desolate looking hills and places so we were very clear about what tone we wanted to capture in that landscape and where we want to say uh, where we wanted to have the picnic in particular so yeah gray um windy beautiful but also mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to be out there you know once it starts to get dark as well and then the flip side being you go into that nocturnal New Zealand, and I remember this from, you know, our childhood, you know, those big long drives at night to, you know, go see your relatives or, or, or whomever, and you look out and you're going through like the desert road and it's just black and just you're in a void. Every now and then you go through these small towns, which, you know, depending what the hour is, Lights are on, but very few, but there's no one on the street. There's nothing's open. It's sort of this this very alone time, this isolated feeling. Yeah, because, so I mean, I mean, Britain just doesn't have anything to compare. You're about 20 miles from anywhere, and most of it's lit with street. There's, if you go on a road with no street with no street lighting, it's a surprise. Yeah, but, I mean, even, even then there are, I mean, you know, this is, this is sort of, we haven't factually based it in any specific, you know, uh, uh, grounded in a specific place in New Zealand, but it is that sense that you can be, you can be in a habit, in a spot that feels like it's full of life, urban or or, or other rural, um, but pending the t- you know that time of night that you go through, they can be just as empty as each other, and you know you, that sense of isolation which was important. Did you use the real car or did you have a kit to shoot? the car scenes in, as it were. 
Yeah, no, no, we had we had both. So we had um, uh, two Range Rovers, um, the temperament, you know, the most temperamental uh, divas on the set were the two cars. We basically had one for the um, studio interiors, so we shot all the interiors of the car scene um, in a room probably maybe twice the size of this. It was the most um, beta lo-fi version of of um, shooting interiors because we just couldn't afford the time we shot we shot the film in 20 days 29 I should say so it was at breakneck speed and to try and do a rig um you know uh, so is that is that why then that the, the the use of the real the real interesting angle choices for close-ups within the car is that that kind of so you can be so precise about what we're looking at partly I had always sort of felt like if we're going to be in that car what like what I want get the feeling of what it would be like to be under this kind of interrogation and pressure in that confined space. So it was very much about that first and foremost. But um, what we did want to do was make sure that we were giving, you know, the actors um, as much environment to react to. So we had, um, you know, we had a, a, a wind system from a fan, you know, with a pipe going in and coming through the cracks of the windows. So you just get that little bit of movement in the hair or in the eyes rather than, you know, we looked at a lot of car commercials and, you know, you see those and they've got these big setups and, and the driver's just driving along. It's just like the body's completely disengaged. You know, they're not really in a car. Even though we had the pressure of having to fake it all, we wanted to give the actors as much of a visceral environment as possible just so you get that little look to the side that they don't have to manufacture it's well, a real I mean, look I, I, I can only be like what a test a test crowd of one but i never got the sense that we weren't moving all the time so hats off to you in that sense you know yeah. like it felt like a real car journey to me yeah i mean it was a real diy i mean we we had we had plates we we had um but this was done we shot the plates we projected them on a $200 projector onto a black curtain and turned the contrast um, way up. So you just got, you got the sort of little black outlines of things moving. And again, it's just, just giving you that sense of there's just, there's just things happening around the environment, that the environment is alive in some way. And it's just going with that. And it's because, because we're with the actors, because this is what's, in in shot most of the time. I like that rhythm of the of the four people being the shot each time. And the only let up was you went we went and looked out of the the windscreen and looked at the headlights on the road. So there was the, the you got the sense that there was nothing out there. So even being out of the car, there's nothing you're not missing anything. But but obviously that only adds to the I mean I guess as a reflection of you having to drive back from a relative's house on a Sunday that would just be a boring when are we getting home mum kind of thing. But obviously in the situation you've placed us in, that's a whole, that claustrophobia and boredom becomes a whole different thing altogether. We talked about the, the writing of it and obviously then you've, you shot the movie and then when you're putting it together in the edit, what was revealed about your initial ideas that you began to change in the edit that wasn't obvious when you, when you were writing it, as it were? I had... Um, an amazing editor, Annie Collins, work on this with, and Annie's done everything from you know Lord of the Rings to Out of the Blue. She's she's a real 
is a real legend here in New Zealand. And I learned I learned a lot from Annie. It was uh, like being with in a, in a film school, and this is my this is my first short film, uh, my first feature film. And so you spend all this time getting it ready to then move into the edit, and you know, as 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 I've been assured happens for most filmmakers, you you go and watch that assembly edit for the first time and in, in in a in a theater and um you know you just watch this whole thing and it's just dead i and i was just like this is going on and on and on and i i was sure it was like 3 hours and at the end of it there was this sort of silence i turned around to annie and i said how long was that and she said that was 91 minutes <laughs> and it was like uh, i can't talk about this today uh, i'm i'm in too much shock I'd like to come back tomorrow and watch it again. So we did that. And then it was more of a case of, you know, so I give myself 24 hours of grieving and then come back and went like, okay, right. Now I've got a clear idea of, of what it is that we, we're dealing with. Um, let's go into that. And what we did over the course of a few months, Annie and I, um, was that we looked and went, what can we pull back on? Uh, and uh, in terms of dialogue or um, uh, you know, other more orchestrated moments, and where can we just develop tension more by by hanging on those faces, lingering looks, um, really focusing on the moment where you think something is going to be said or happen, because that's where the tension's really the thickest. Um, rather than you know, sort of you know, because I think we we ended up losing a lot of dialogue. Actually, there was there was a lot that you know went out the window, and yet still it still feels you know, Mandrake is still very garrulous through the whole thing. So it was a case of going like, oh right, less is more. You know, we yeah we we have got lots of stuff, but actually we can even at this stage we can we even though it felt right on the day and the scenes themselves um, are great. It's just like we don't need it. And it was just being very uh, diligent in how we pair back so that the potency of what's happening between the characters in the moment is stronger. And, and once we did that, it, it, it actually came together. You know, it's, it's, it's the film that I had imagined, obviously, in my head, but, but not the one that I saw um, before, before the shoot. So it's, it's very... It's very much leaning into the those intentions that we wanted, but being really ruthless about how do we make them as economic and sharp as possible. Can you give a scene example of where you had the sort of a lot of dialogue took up the scene and then you pared it down and pared it down, and then what you're left with is as, as few words as you need, but obviously plus the atmosphere of holding on a face or... There was a lot more dialogue in that initial run of questioning where Hoagie arrives at the conclusion of, I never said I was a teacher. Mm. And um, what followed on from there, I think it's just before they land at the gas station. Right. Uh, that, that had a lot more. And obviously that was, that's the first big scene. So it was, you know, we were also conscious of, of, of length and everything like that. Yeah. That was just a, a case of going, you know, we cut to Jill a lot there. We see her eyes sort of like 
things are starting to land in her and the conversation. I love where that. I'm, I love that aspect of her where she's almost. It's a, you're getting her penny drop, but she don't. She doesn't actually know what Penny's about to drop yet, but she knows it's not going to be good. So going to, I mean, I'm a big fan of going just because you're saying you're saying the line or you're or you're the person who's meant to be hearing the line doesn't mean we should be on either of you. It's about what's being said is affecting the whole. And we did find um, we're getting the potency of what's being revealed more through Jill or Tubbs, actually, because Tubbs, Tubbs who we haven't really talked about too much, you know, he's in the dark about this as well really you know he's he's not he's he's not as far ahead in terms of the plan um as mandrake is he's much more reactive so you're seeing um you're starting to see how this this moment this revelation is starting to unfold but how it's going to affect other people as well not just the two those two uh, men hoagie and mandrake i think you know it's about going. This is something I encourage the actors too. It's just like it's all up for grabs. Um, if you can, if you can fight for the camera to be looking at you, without without getting outside of the scene or, or, or doing something you know that's going to damage the scene, that can you know it's got to be you've got to be following the story still, the intended story and the beat. You need to be you know constantly on because um, and, and we shot different scenes at different times. Of just going, we'll just leave that. We'll we'll start here, but let's drift over and and watch, watch what Matthias is doing, um, and, and see what's revealed there. But I mean, I was so sorry. That, I was I, I, I was that was one thing that I noted again. It's the second watch where I saw this more. Is in the same way that you make Jill's involvement active, the sort of opening up of of. Tubbs as a character who's also in this dilemma and this predicament as much as Hoagie, because I'm guessing from the way it starts off before the name of Hoagie is revealed, they would have just been left there to wait until they'd gone away. They weren't going to die, I'm guessing. Uh, uh, Well, in my mind, in my mind, they they would have just all been put down. Ah, okay. Um, Because I I took the... I took the kind of name dropping bit as being why the first two get killed, and it's like, and we take them with us. I just, I just thought they weren't going to do it. I don't know why I didn't. But anyway, that's 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 neither here nor there. Yeah, um, and, and I mean, and, and that's something you know. I think that's very callous about you know, like New Zealand or any other place. You know, we've got a long we've got a long history of you know, um, especially in the eighties and nineties of uh, you know, backpackers go hitchhiking. Uh, they're robbed and they're this they're needlessly executed. Right. Okay. Sort of, I never think it's when I think of Tubbs, it's never something uh I think it's something that he just he endures. Um I don't think he he has a, a need to do that as opposed to Mandrake, which is sort of it's all about um control and power. But you but you give us but I mean I can't imagine it was on the pay on page one, but tell me if it was. Because in the film, you give us tubs at the start of the film. You silhouette him against the hill and you end him silhouetted against the hill. So, and, it, and, and I must admit, the first time I didn't see that and I was like, I, I was really arrested by it this first time around. I'm going, oh, why? And I've made a note of like, oh, who was that? And obviously I've got to wait a long time before I, re- I, I, were, I get the answers to what that moment was. Because 
it definitely is not directly linked to to the opening sequence. So it, it was kind of jarring. Um, but you but you pay it off, and it's beautifully done. And you're right. I mean, that was that wasn't on the tape. That was you know, the first the first image we had was the the second shot of the film, which is the 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 abandoned uh, Mercedes side of the page. And you know, Annie Annie sort of suggested looking at you know how it, it's it's the invitation is, is with the car is fine. It's a little languid. It's a, you know. Um, how do we? How can we sort of make something more thematically a statement? Well, it, in a way, it personalised the abandoned car in a way because you've got the silhouetted. For me, you've got the silhouetted figure, and I, I'm thinking, well, there must be a link between the silhouetted figure and the abandoned car. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the person whose car's been robbed off them, or they're the one that's robbed it. You know, you don't know that at that point, but. You definitely personalise it as opposed to because because an abandoned car could look like a bloody could just be a dystopia, <laughs> you know. We see we see abandoned cars all the time. It's a great way of putting it, personalising because I mean we wanted to start with a uh, uh, an image of which it, there was a level of obscurity to it and mystery to it. So automatically we're trying to get people going like, what? Where are we going with this? What's what 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 is this? And it also came from this. Um, notion of um because because tubs up on that hill you know looks like a, a little kid really it could be a little you don't know anything um and and i'm always struck by you know i remember speaking to um uh one of the guys who i met through um you know doing the documentary about being in a boy's home and, and this guy's a very big burly intimidating gorilla of a man and he's had his um He's since had his settlement with the government and he's had um, compensation for what's happened to him. But I always remember him saying, you know, the problem when I talk about these these things that have happened to me and trying to get some acknowledgement is people only see the man. They see the tax, they see the size, they see the criminal. They don't see that what I'm talking about is what happened to the 10-year-old boy in the man. And that's how I always sort of, that's how I saw Tubbs and that's the quality that Matthias brings to the role is that, you know, how do we, how can we actually see the boy in the man? Because mm. that's what we're talking about. No, 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 it's lovely. So I love that idea of, you know, this little sort of, is, is, that a, is that a kid? What's he doing on the beach? And then at the end, we obviously have an understanding of who that is and what that means. And that felt like a really great way to, sort of, you know, in and keep keep on thematic. Mm, well, um, no doubt, no, it works a treat. Um, hmm. Given you did so much work with people directly affected with it, how how, how was their response? How did you find their response to what you'd done with their stories and their their experiences that they'd shared with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, we didn't. Uh, there's a couple of the only things that we have referred to that was specifics and things that actually happened um, came from one particular person, a good friend of mine, Keith. Um, mm. And so he, he gave us permission to, to, you know, he advocated for it. Keith's very, um, you know, he's been very um, instrumental with the Royal Commission here and, and, you know, we've developed a really good friendship. So he's, he's very much behind the film. So it was very important to go, well, if we're going to talk about specifics, then you know we need to have permission from that from that person who you know um, 
happened to. What I found was really fascinating was that after the film came out, uh, a, a, a lawyer in um, Tampa, Florida, contacted me and said, you know, saw the film, loved it. Um, can I ask, was it inspired by events that happened at a place called Aspen Ranch in the States? And I was like, oh, no. And I, I read up on this a bit and he said, because, you know, the scrubbing incident, that was, that happened at Aspen Ranch, you know, the tattoo that got scrubbed by a staff member. And he said, and that's, and, and Hoagie reminded me so much of that, that staff member who he had he had been, and I looked on a, on a another review on Amazon that meant just said Aspen Ranch question um, mark, and you know I think uh, you know what that really speaks to is sort of the banality of evil, the banality of sadism. You know, it's it it doesn't take to me it takes a lack of imagination, and it's you know no surprise that these kinds of things happen on both sides of the globe at different places and different times um, when people commit acts of cruelty. You know, it's, it's easy to be cruel. It's not, it's not, um, it's not a, a stretch of the imagination. So I found that really fascinating and very, you know, it was very sad actually. But, again, if that is, you know, tapped into something that, you know, helps talk, you know, the effects of what's happened at places like Aspen Branch or all the schools that we talk about and coming home in the dark, I think that's a positive thing. But if if anything, the person I was most concerned about their opinion of the film wasn't Owen, wasn't my mum and dad, <laughs> wasn't wasn't anyone. It was um, Keith and a couple of the other people. Yeah, involved. yeah, yeah. I imagine there's a lot of pressure there. And it, and it, was, it was great to have, um, you know, their blessing in the first place, but also just their response on opening night. You know, Keith was Keith was there sitting next to the deputy prime minister, who knew about his his own journey as well, and and to have that sort of you know acknowledgement from from people who have lived through that experience. Of course, this is a fiction; it's drawing from real life inspirations. Yeah. Yes, but uh, uh, the fact that you know, and and in Keith's words, it's that thing of going. It's now documented, it's now in in record, and it's now getting to that audience that is actually hard to for for you know to engage with through the courts and the news. Um, it's getting to an audience to get them thinking in a little more open and empathetic, hopefully, mm. to the rather ugly, you know, side of our of our social and cultural history here in New Zealand. So um, that, that meant a lot. I imagine. I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think one of the lines that, that Jill says, I think you really open up the, converse, the conversation about these kind of things with the, you know, the difference between doing it and letting it happen is a, is a thing, but, but they live on the same street. I thought that was a brilliant way of, of encompassing the wrong and the wrong, you know, <laughs> there's no right and wrong here. They're just wrong and wrong. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's, and that's the reason why we don't we we met a little bit of pressure early on in the um with the script about Hoagie people feeling like no Hoagie needs to have done something he needs to have committed a much stronger um, irredeemable unforgivable act to warrant 
what is happening to him and his family. And we were always very clear of going, no, because the moment we do that, the moment you make somebody um, a, a pedophile, say, mm. if the, his character had been that, or a, a sexual abuser, as an audience member, I think we're immediately able to divorce ourselves then. Absolutely. Go, ah, that's not me. You know, that is not, yeah, yeah, that yeah. is one, one, one bridge too far. So I'm, I'm out. Where if we make them complicit in going, well, uh, how, are we not all standing by and watching and Absolutely. allowing things to happen? Then I'm not. Then we're not letting you off, and therefore you're in the story more, whether you agree with that or not. This is about power, and and I think institutional power has a very strong effect on people's good and bad decisions, and it takes it. It, it clearly takes a very very strong person who might be at the start of what career they've just spent five years studying to be to turn around and go oi whoa this isn't how you do it absolutely and it's that thing of going you, you know that's i mean have, have we we've all turned a blind eye in the um you know playground as children yeah. to you know a bully taking taking you know you know victimizing some other poor kid and you're just kind of grateful it's not happening to you so you yeah you yeah, don't yeah, go, yeah 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 you know, these are all the sort of beginnings and, 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 and they're very human flaws too, which we should acknowledge and not necessarily, you know, uh, you know, be punitive about, but it's about going, it's still a choice. And how do we make those choices earlier to stand up? And, mm-hmm. and, and also, how do we have some empathy for people like Hoagie? Who in going like that is a hard situation. That is a tough situation because most of the people I I've met and interviewed who really went into those places to do good, um, either um, they 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 checked out early because it's just like this is too big for me, or that they've moved through the ranks in some way to try and get involved with um, policy and influence in affecting change rather than being on the front. Now, one last question then, given it was your first feature, your director or debut on a feature, and you've obviously made made a number of shorts leading up to that, um, and and, and a 20-day shoot must have been a bloody whirlwind for you. Um, (laughs) what, What do you recall as like, not necessarily a fond memory, I and mean, it can be a fond memory by all means, but just one of those things where you're kind of like that fish clenching, yes, we did it, when it kind of, you know, in the run-up to it and you knew it was in the schedule or and you were thinking, how oh, the shit are we going to do that? Is there anything you remember of the shoot where it was like something you knew was going to be a challenge and it was such a such a joy to, to overcome it? Sort of looking back at it now, and I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not being facetious, every single bloody day of production shoot post was literally after a while it started to feel funny because it's just like I know I know you you know you expect challenges in a film but it feels like I'm literally have have the list of all the challenges that can happen I'm just checking them off as it goes um but the best thing about that and the thing I enjoyed and felt most confident in was going these aren't these aren't these aren't my sole problems to be burdened with this, these are the challenges. This is this is making a film. This is what it's not. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a problem. It's the actual craft of making a film and how you how you rally round and um, you know uh, you know I relieve yourself of having to have all the answers for one and start utilizing the strength and the skills 
um, in the team around you to be part of and, and bring them into the challenge. I mean, you know, obviously, better, you know, as a director, there's an accountability with, um, you know, aspects of the film and you have to make the tough decision, sure. But you've got these great people around you who have worked on everything from Avatar to Lord of the Rings to student short films. Bring them into the challenge and 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 arm yourself with them and lean on them and 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 explore, get curious, get interested, throw the throw the problem to to other people to, you know, the Apollo 13 process of being around the table where you've got all the experts going, well, if we do this, this will be the you know side effect of that. And the next person goes, yeah, but if we do that, so we might need to do this to get around that aspect. And then it becomes alive. It becomes not just pleasurable and fun because it really, that, that's, the, that's the exciting part of filmmaking, I think, is in, in those challenges and, and discoveries. But it also imbues everyone with a focus and a drive to come up with solutions. So the, 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 this aspect of, you know, the, the hair moving through the car window that I wanted for the, um, uh, for the um, actors uh, that was that was solved by the sound team uh, because because it was most important for the sound team because they don't want some whirring fan or, or something coming from so they actually found a way to do it wow. where it was done silently and things like that so it was about going like yeah yeah you've got a, a job to do and we're not wanting to load you up with extra um, uh, uh, you know problems to solve outside of that but but this is something that affects what you have to do. So you will be ha- coming to it with a whole bunch of perspectives on that, that so others won't be thinking. So about. it's a bit, so instead of, so instead of feeling as that first time director, I've got to make a film, you try to keep hold of we're making a film as a kind of central, as a, as a, almost like a dogmatic point. <laughs> oh, a, a, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, I, I think this just comes from the fact that I come from a theatre background too, a, a, you know, a, um, you know, we did a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, devised work, which was where the lines of, you know, designer, writer, director, performer all start to get blurred. So I yeah. think Eli and I, you know, we have the, we're lucky that we have that in our repertoire. But um, look, I mean, I'm, I'm the arbiter of taste on the thing. Of course. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I have a very clear idea of what I'm looking for and the feeling going for. But it's about making sure everyone understands what that is and give them the space to to do their job to the best of their capabilities. It's um, um, I, I've I've known a few directors who it sounds like you know it's a pretty lonely job sometimes. Mm. Um, and you know the best thing about this is just you know, it wasn't lonely at all. Um, even even in those you know the, like the edit suite when it's just two people, it was always front of mind how do I um how do I allow people to do their job to the best possible of their capabilities um and and provide an outcome that they're they're proud of and generally if I can do that they're simultaneously usually they're hitting the note of what the feeling of my vision or the intention of the vision is at any given moment I think there's a really strong um alignment between those two and I those two aspects of filmmaking. I think you really have to trust yourself and you have to trust your crew to do that. But it's important to induct people in the right way into that vision. 
be very clear about what your intention is. You know, make sure that they understand it from the no, indeed. Go. I mean, look, that's I mean, in a way, it's, it's kind of leadership one-on-one, isn't it? In a way, it's like you, you can't assume people know exactly what's in your head. So you're better off trying to tell them some of it. And it's yeah, and it, it amazes me how that's that's something that seems to never be taught. Leadership and networking are the two things that don't seem to get taught on filmmaking courses. And you'd think it's one of the the two biggest aspects of like once you get control of anything. Yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate that I've learned that from being on sets as an actor. I've had a lot of time. I mean, I've been, I had been on film sets since I was fifteen, so I've seen it at its best and at its worst too. So that's you know by osmosis I've learned learned it. So it was um it was great to be leading that. Well, look, congratulations on coming home in the dark. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and hopefully that's come across Thank in you. the in the conversation we've had. People can watch that on Netflix, as we said at the beginning. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Oh, it's been it's been a real pleasure, Stuart. Thank you. about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Palmetto Porch.com.